I'm here with Professor Sarah Teitelbaum, who is with the University of Montreal and the author of a new book called Community Forestry in Canada, published by UBC Press this year, 2016. Hello, Professor Teitelbaum. Yes, hello there. It's great to have you on the line. Let's talk about the new book and specifically content in the book, if we may. Um, first of all, perhaps you could just take a moment to let our listeners know a little something about the book, its its evolution, how it came how it came to be. Sure. Um, I think the first thing to, to, to just be precise about is that it's actually a, a collected volume, like an edited volume of different authors within one book. So there's about 15 chapters, and there's about more than 25 different authors that contributed to the book. And I myself have a couple of chapters plus the introduction. So it, right. it really okay. was like a, a joint effort on the part of a lot of different researchers, mainly Canadian, who are interested in and have been researching community forestry for some time. I did my PhD thesis about community forestry um, between around 2002 and 2008. And uh, as a result of visiting quite a few community forests, going to conferences and, and just basically kind of getting to know people within that research area in Canada, I, I, uh, I sort of was inspired to bring people together to do this and to, and to really do kind of a, you know, like a cross-Canada portrait of community forestry practice and policy in order to, you know, bring kind of more empirical clarity to what this approach looks like and how things are developing in different provinces across Canada. Okay, so that raises a question, and it is, where in your opinion, or based on the research you and your colleagues have done, does community forestry here in British Columbia fit in with what's going on nationally when it comes mm -hmm. to community forestry? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, what I discovered, I, I, I discovered this before I started working on the book because I did kind of a national survey of community forests. And I should probably specify that I'm really looking at community forestry on crown land, so on public land, not on private land. And when I did that survey, which was in sort of 2003-04, what I found was that there were really three provinces that were quite advanced with regards to um, their policy support for community forestry and which were sort of already ahead of the pack. And those were BC, Quebec and Ontario. So BC is kind of one of the front runners and BC I often refer to as an interesting example and also a front runner because community forestry is a little bit more visible in BC. It's a little bit more organized. You have your own tenure, you have your own BC Community Forest Association. And so there's there's kind of a visibility around community forestry in BC that actually doesn't exist to the same extent, even in Quebec and in Ontario. That's interesting. And, and what would you ascribe that to? Oh, I think, you know, there's a chapter in the book which is written by uh, Lisa Ambus, and um, she's done a master's thesis and work on community forestry. And, you know, there's a lot of content in that chapter about sort of social movements and the political mobilization and sort of conflict around forestry in BC that's already created a certain amount of visibility around the need for policy solutions and public interest in uh, different alternatives to industrial conventional approaches to forestry. And so I, I think there's kind of a critical mass of people and interest within the province that's meant that, um, you know, people are paying attention and there's some kind of, you know, there's there's some political will to 
kind of organize this thing and, and, and make it accessible and make it, you know, also visible uh, from sort of a provincial perspective, right. which may be a little less that. strong in, in some of the other provinces. Mm-hmm. Understood. I, I noticed that in Lisa Ambrose's chapter, Chapter 6, which is titled Community Forestry in British Columbia, her subtitle is From a Movement to an Institution. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Let's stay with BC for a moment. The next chapter mm-hmm. in the book, Chapter 7, seems to zero in on the experiences of the folks in Burns Lake. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you share any lessons that you feel could be drawn from the experience of Burns Lake? Well, Burns Lake is an interesting example. It's it's one of the bigger community forests in Canada, and it's it's, you know, it's a it's a community forest that has has really adopted a model of sort of trying to 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 be operating like another for like another license holder and 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 you know and and focusing on you know uh revenue generation and employment and 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 staying profitable within what was been a difficult economic context and um and you know and and as a result um, from, from what I remember from the chapter, I think has faced some of the same challenges as other sort of corporate types of, of license holders in that, you know, the, the, um, the, the beetle outbreak and other factors such as that have meant that they've had to adjust their operations and, and, and do extra harvesting and, and, um, you know, and make difficult decisions around, um, you know, mitigating environmental impacts and so on and so forth. But, you know, I, from what I, from what I understand, I, I don't, have the specifics of their situation, but I think have been fairly successful in in, in managing those different constraints, um, you know, w- within what has been like a pretty challenging economic context. Right. And it, it strikes me that there's an interesting comparison there, a contrasting comparison, certainly between the experiences and the way Burns Lake's operation is structured. And for example, the community forest in Herrick Proctor, also in mm-hmm, BC, definitely. which is featured in Chapter 12 of your book, which of course mm-hmm. is cooperative and interestingly enough has its own mill. Mm-hmm. Well, I think they do some kind of really small-scale processing. It's not a mill at the, to the same extent as as you would imagine in in more of like a industrial scale. No, no, of but course. But they have right. invested some money in in in, in kind of value-added processing, yeah. But you're right. I think it's a it's a really excellent comparison, and I think to me that 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 comparison really demonstrates that you know it's very hard to generalize about what a community forest is. It's very hard to be you know really kind of um, quick about it in terms of explaining to people what that concept means and how it's operationalized because you do have these very contrasting situations where, you know, a community forest could even be like a very large-scale enterprise where the structure of the actual organization is is governed by local people and, you know, maybe there's a type of cooperative or non-profit um, dimension to it, but it really runs like a large-scale business like any other. And then there are other examples like Hare Proctor that are very small-scale and which you know have have made a very strong commitment towards integrating these ecosystem-based principles or you know social economy types of principles, and who you know maybe just really funneling a lot of their resources and energy into developing things beyond straight-up timber harvesting. So you you know you, you have quite a spectrum of different aims and objectives, 
different scales, different kind of governance structures, um, operational approaches. It's really quite varied. Right. Okay. So speaking of the Herrick Proctor Community Forest, Eric Leslie, who also happens to be the the chairman of the BC Community Forest Association, is Herrick Proctor's forester, as it mm-hmm. turns out. And I see that he's written a chapter in the book as well called Why Community Forests Need More Control Over Forest Management. Mm-hmm. What's the crux of, of that argument? Yeah, that's another very good question. And the, the issue that he brings up in that chapter is an issue which is of fundamental importance to community forests around the world. It's a really important issue, and it's really the sort of the question of how much authority do community forests have? And so especially when you're talking about community forests on public land, they are quite constrained actually by high-level policy decisions which they, which they actually don't have authority over. One example being the question of the annual allowable cut. Another, you know, I've seen other examples where it's like strategic questions around wildlife management strategies or, you know, issues around road closures or, you know, like big operational and strategic decision-making. And so what a lot of community forests face in many different jurisdictions is that they have a vision which may be kind of different from the vision that the provincial government, whoever the sort of jurisdictional authority is, with regards to how they want to manage their forest, but they still, because they're on public land, they have to kind of operate within these same constraints as all the other operators. And most of the other operators are corporate, you know, corporate entities whose bottom line is really kind of extracting wood and creating jobs and, and you know, and being um, financially viable, whereas some of these community forests, they arrive with a very different vision, and yet they're accountable to the same legal and regulatory framework as all the other actors, and then they find themselves quite constrained by that kind of upper-level um, regulatory framework. Right. So thus the genius, I suppose, behind having a robust provincial association that can Hopefully, one would think if 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 a proponent of community forestry have the have the strength, the muscle to be able to sit down at the table and negotiate those kinds of matters with provincial officials, for example. I think that that would be one role of an association, but I think that you know it, it's 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 a, it's a shared responsibility which goes you know I think which kind of connects with every level. Like I think it's. It, if, if, if a government is going to put in place a, a, a successful community forestry policy and, and, and tenure and so on, I think that if it's really going to be successful, it needs to be kind of an adapted regulatory context. You can't just impose the same one-size-fits-all approach to community forests that you that you that you impose on large-scale industrial tenures, which right. has been a big problem in other provinces. Like in Quebec, they've got sort of small-scale tenure situation. And it's, you know, a lot of these community forests have found themselves quite constrained by the, even just the administrative burden of having to answer to these kinds of same types of accountability mechanisms that the large-scale players have to be accountable to. Right. So capacity becomes a real issue, including human... Well, capacity and streamlining and efficiency. Right. Right. Okay. So I've been told that over the past 10 or 20 years, certainly in British Columbia, while profits in the industry writ large may over time be rising, 
employment associated with forestry is declining to the extent that if I remember correctly, right now it's we're looking at something like 0.8 full-time equivalencies per thousand cubic meters of cut in British Columbia. And I know from talking with a few community forest operations in the province, that ratio of jobs to harvested timber tends to be much higher. So I'm just wondering if a community that does not currently have a community forest might be contemplating creating one. And of course, the the question of, well, what's the what's the financial benefit? What are the benefits to our community for doing so? What what if you were in the room and people turned to you and asked you that question? What would your answer be? Well, you know, I think you you, you do need to think about it in a broad uh, frame of mind, which is that it's not just for the economic benefits that communities get involved in um, community forestry, and in fact, in quite a few of the examples that I've looked at, you know, not necessarily in BC, but in BC and elsewhere. It wasn't always the economic aspect that was the sipping that propelled the community to want to start a community forest. It was the fact that they wanted to have more more control or at least more influence over um, forestry practices, for example. So you can have these community forests like I know that the Creston Valley Community Forest Corporation started out this way where there was concern over the impacts of industrial forestry practices, and so there, there was, that was kind of the main impetus for the creation of the community forest. Same thing in a few in Quebec. And sometimes also there's kind of a social dimension to it that, they are, that the community is thinking that, okay, well, these forests are in proximity to our communities. Couldn't we do something a little bit more diversified in order to kind of um, you know, just create um, create a connecti- connectivity and benefit for the community, for example, in terms of like diversifying into the development of non-timber forest products or educational activities or recreation or, you know, all of the other types of benefits that people are interested in gaining from their surrounding forests. Right. And then the, the question of jobs is certainly important. And I think that, you know, people in rural communities – uh, reach a certain level of frustration sometimes when, when, for example, the mill is really far away from where they live and they can see a lot of wood being trucked out, but they don't see a lot of benefit. They don't see a lot of jobs being created for people within their communities. And so there's this idea that, well, if we can kind of keep things a little bit closer to home, maybe we can at least have a little bit more control over who gets hired and how, how the, you know, how the forest is going to be, you know, harvested and, and, and processed and so on. Right. Okay, so let's let's finish this conversation with a uh, higher level question, if you will, as one with international implications. Mm-hmm. Speaking of implications, what, in your opinion, are the implications of a potential renegotiation of the softwood lumber agreement with the pending Trump administration for community forestry in Canada? Well, that's a good question. I mean, there, you know, there has been. I'm not really an expert on this question, but I've certainly heard talk of the fact that there can sometimes be pushback on what people see as kind of um, differential stumpage arrangements with regards to different actors and so on. You know, that if if if, if there's if there are different kinds of um, ca- calculations or formulas that are used for different actors with regards to stumpage calculations and so on. I'm really not right. an expert on it, but you know, I could imagine. 
um, that there, you know, that some of those questions might come up uh, with regards to these types of renegotiations. But again, like because I'm I'm much more I'm actually a sociologist and I I don't have a my finger on the pulse of the sort of international policy dimension of it. I would I I wouldn't really be able to give you a very strong answer except for that yeah that I'm sure that the the provincial government as well as the BC Community Forest Association and others are going to be very attentive to those negotiations and you know and 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 being attentive to the need to be you know able to justify different types of decisions that are going to be made around how we can best support these initiatives um which again I always come back to this idea of how important it is to be able to valorize the things that community forests produce beyond just another form of timber timber extraction right Okay, so any final words of advice or encouragement or warning for existing community forests here in BC uh, based on your research and based on what you know about the industry today? Well, you know, I I I started doing this this research um in you know, in the early 2000s when and I I created this sort of map of all the community forests in Canada and you know the the place that's expanded the most since I started doing that, which was more than ten years ago, is BC. And so, you know, I, I feel like BC is evolving and and is is innovating. And I think that the presence of the BC Community Forest Association has been really really positive in terms of being able to have that kind of collective vision for how things are moving forward, and also just supporting community forests more generally. But you know, but I, at the same time, I, I feel a little bit. I guess disappointed that things haven't evolved more quickly in other parts of Canada. There is a new community forest in Nova Scotia, the first of its kind. But, you know, I think that maybe people in BC have a role to play in terms of supporting other provinces in terms of getting that kind of institutionalization that, that Lisa Ambus mentioned in her uh, in her chapter and, and kind of inspiring other places to, uh, to to get moving. So some sort of national network, perhaps. Perhaps, yeah, or even just some, you know, knowledge transfer networking and that type of stuff. Right. Okay. Well, look, thank you so much for your time and your comments. This has been very interesting. We've been discussing community forestry in Canada generally, but in particular in BC with Professor Sarah Teitelbaum of the University of Montreal, who's the author editor of Community Forestry in Canada, published in 2016 by our very own UBC Press. Professor Teitelbaum, thanks so much for your time. You're very welcome.